0: Jesus, it is that truth that we celebrate. It is that truth that draws us together this morning. That you have paid a debt that we could not pay. That you have defeated sin. You have defeated hell. You have defeated Satan. You have defeated anything and everything that could separate us from your love. We celebrate That Good Friday is not the end of the story. We celebrate that the silence of Saturday was met with the chorus of a tomb that was rolled away. A stone that was rolled away in an empty tomb that, that proclaims to all this morning that you are risen. God, we thank you for the truth of Easter. We thank you that Easter changes everything. May you continue to speak to our hearts as we focus our attention upon your word and the clarity of the call of that original Easter morning. It's in your name we pray, the risen name of Christ. Amen. He is risen. Church, if you have a copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18 as we celebrate our risen Lord and Savior. I'm so glad you're here this morning. If this is the first time that you have attended Dawson, we welcome you. My name is David Eldridge and I have the great privilege of serving as the pastor here. If It's been a while since you've been here at Dawson. I'm so glad that you're here. If you're here most Sundays, I am so glad that you're here. We are celebrating today the foundational fact of what our faith is about. We're celebrating today the wonderful news that approximately 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this earth. The Bible tells us that He is God's eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity that He has always been, but He actually entered into Uh, this existence. He came to this earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He healed people. He taught. Uh, There are wonderful miracles that we see in the Gospels, the four books of the Bible that tell us about Jesus's earthly ministry. And then this past Friday, we came together with what the Christian church calls Good Friday. And it doesn't seem like it's good, but the fact of that person, Jesus Christ, who lived 2,000 years ago, he, he died, and he died a cruel death. He died a painful death. He, he died a humiliating death. The death that Jesus died on a cross was a death that was reserved for the lowest of the criminals of that day. It was a death that was reserved for the slaves of that day it was not a death that even a roman citizen could normally die of i mean it was a cruel death and jesus died that death and the bible tells us that he died upon a cross and your sins and my sins the sins of all of humanity every lust and every lie from our gluttony to our gossip from our pride to our prejudice all of, that, all of our sins were placed upon Jesus, and then he died, and he died on Friday. He was buried in a tomb that Friday. They came on Sunday, and that's where the story takes an unexpected shift. That's why in some respects this is fitting that this is April Fool's Day because the type of story that I'm telling you seems to have some type of punchline. There was a person and he lived and then he died and now he's living again April Fool's, but this is not a normal April Fool's story. This is a story that takes an unexpected twist and turn and the one who lived a perfect life, who died a death for your sins and for my sins was raised and he defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated everything and anything that would separate you from the love of his father, God eternal. That is what we celebrate on Easter. There's much about Easter that we could talk about, but I want to just be very simple and to the point. I want to remind you this morning of the surprise of that first Easter morning. And I want to remind you, or maybe even tell you for the first time, the significance of that first Easter morning. So I want us to think about the surprise and the significance. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, reads this way. And on the first day of the week... For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The surprise of that first Easter morning, Dawson. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early in the morning. It was still dark. There's four gospel accounts of the resurrection. They're not contradictory accounts, but they're complementary accounts with different emphases. John emphasizes Mary Magdalene and her leadership. He kind of sets her apart. It could seem as if this is a contradiction to the other three gospel accounts, but if you notice the pronoun in verse 2 here, we do not know where they have laid him. So we have Mary Magdalene in verse 1, we have a plural pronoun in verse 2, so it isn't that Mary Magdalene is alone, but in some respects John is signifying, he's setting her a part in his gospel account that's not a contradiction to the other gospels but is a complementary account. She comes to the tomb and there is something that John wants us to hear and that it was dark that morning. Now, obviously, it was early in the morning, but there's something more to the setting. He's setting a mood because for Mary Magdalene, it's spiritually dark, it is emotionally dark. There's an absence of hope and joy. There's a knot in her stomach because the unthinkable had happened upon Friday, and now she's coming and it's setting in on her. Many of you know what it's like to get that call unexpected at night. Many of you know what it's like to make the plans with the funeral home. Many of you know what it's like to have that knot in your stomach where you wake up the next morning and say, Did that actually happen? And then it begins to settle. Darkness settles. So for Mary Magdalene, it it is dark that morning because Jesus is dead. The unthinkable has happened. So she approaches the tomb. And while it's still dark, she sees that something is eerily out of place. A stone, the stone that actually encased the tomb of Jesus has been rolled away. So she runs to tell the disciples, not Jesus is alive. That's not what's on her mind whatsoever. She runs to tell the disciples, thieves have stolen the body. Can you believe this, that after all that he has gone through and we tried to give him a, a burial that is worthy of what he taught us and how he lived among us, now his body is not there. They thought that thieves have stolen the body and it was commonplace or all kinds of laws in that first century world uh, that would prevent looting of uh, the tombs of people because criminals would go in and they would, they would loot those tombs. And then there's a foot race, the first amazing race between a beloved disciple. We think probably the beloved disciple is John. John and the other person, the other participant in this race is Simon Peter. The beloved disciple John, Simon Peter, they they set off and as the light of the morning begins to shine into the depths of that empty tomb, they see first the linen cloths of Jesus They see the face cloths folded, and the passage tells us in verse 8, John says that John looks in, the beloved disciple, John looks in and sees the empty tomb, sees the folded cloth, sees uh, those evidences of the resurrection, doesn't see Jesus. It isn't as if Jesus waves to him and says, hey, I'm here. That's not what we hear. He sees the evidence of a resurrection, and the passage tells us that he believed. He sees the evidence of an empty tomb and he believes. You know, in many respects, we, we stand in the feet, uh, in the shoes. We, we follow the path of the beloved disciple in Simon Peter because we're in this room here and I, I, I would imagine that that none of us have, have physically and tangibly, like I'm touching This table right here, none of us in this room have have physically held the hand of Jesus Christ. None of us have had Jesus over for dinner. So all of us are in the place of these two disciples who are viewing the evidence of the resurrection. And we are believing in spite of the fact that we don't physically see, physically touch the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ here upon the earth. That's important. And for some of you, it's an obstacle. I had a great friend of mine in the previous community in which I lived. He was sort of on the fringes of the church. He had been in the church, but he hadn't been in the church in decades. And so we knew each other from a long time ago, and we rekindled a friendship. And he was just a very honest person. And he said, "David, you know, it, it really is foolish what you talk about Sunday after Sunday." Let me just cut to the chase. I mean, you're up there saying something that sounds to me just like a folk's tale. It sounds like a fiction novel. I mean, you're up there saying that you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But David, you've never seen Jesus. Have you ever touched Jesus? Have you ever gone to lunch with Jesus? And that, that for him was just this evidence that he could not overcome. And so we had all kinds of conversations. We, we really had years of conversations. And we would talk about the things that, that, that really trusting in Christ Jesus is not a, it is not a blonde jump into an abyss of the unknown, but there's, there's a lot of linen cloths out there. There's a lot of evidence that we see. I mean, I talked to my friend about how Paul would say in First Corinthians chapter 15 that there were 500 witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. That if you were to interview all 500 of these, you would have hundreds upon hundreds of hours of eyewitness testimony. This isn't a mass hallucination. This is evidence of a risen Lord Jesus Christ. I talked to him about that. I talked to him about the way that the gospel accounts tell us of the resurrection of Jesus. If you were to invent the story, you would not invent it as John has it with Mary Magdalene as the protagonist, as the central subject, because in the evidence of the court in the first century, if the only person that witnessed a crime was a female, it would have been thrown out of court because in that world 2,000 years ago, the value of a woman's testimony was that low in the total Paul, of evidence. So if the disciples are going to invent a story, they invented a story in the worst possible way they could have by having women being the first proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked about that. We talked about the way that the disciples on Good Friday are running, and are fearful, and are scared, and then we get to Acts chapter 1, and they're standing up, and they're proclaiming Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They go from cowering to courageous. They go from running in fear of their life to, in the book of Acts, dying for the resurrection, and, and we would oftentimes come back to a Chuck Colson quote. You, you know Chuck Colson, who was called the hatchet man for Watergate. He, he was special counsel to President Nixon. He was embroiled in the Watergate scandal and he went to jail. And while he was in jail, he gets a hold of mere Christianity and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of him and he becomes a Christian. And Colson said this about the evidence of the resurrection in light of the courageous proclamation of the disciples. And this is what Colson said, I know the resurrection is a fact. You know how? Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put into prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. And you're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, Colson said. And so we talked about the linen cloths. We, we talked about the evidence of the resurrection, that while we look into the empty tomb, we, we talked about the way that it builds a case. And this is not a, a blind jump into an abyss of nonsense, but, but we, like these two original disciples, are looking into the empty tomb and we're gauging the evidence. We're gauging those who saw him. We're gauging the historical evidence and the historicity of this fact here. But, but there's more to it. And this is where I would always come back to, and we would always have this conversation. Yes, women were there. That was different. Yes, these 12 men went from cowering to courageous. Yes, we have over 500 witnesses. Yes, there's historicity to this, but there's more to it. Because I would tell him, I have seen the power of the resurrection. I've seen it in the way that I see the wind. I see the effects of the wind. I cannot harness the wind. I can't jump on top of the wind and hold the wind down. But I see the effects of it, I feel the effects of it. I don't grab gravity. But I I live in light of gravity. I live in light of the unseen reality that, that really changes all of reality. That this is here even though I can't with my physical eyes be able to hold it or see it. But I know it is there because it affects everything around me. And so the power of the resurrection as a pastor is that I've been able to see as a pastor the resurrection power in the life of a couple that after 30 years says, I don't love you anymore. And God's powerful resurrection begins to work in the hearts of a couple that after saying, I do say, I don't. And then all of a sudden God begins to mold them and to shape them and to bring them back into a place where they were at the place of son and the divorce papers and God heals that marriage, what do you explain that by? I can tell you it is the power of the resurrection alive and well in the heart of that couple. I've seen parents grieving, grieving, Weeping, crying at the uh, passing, tragic passing of, of one of their children. But in the midst of tears, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, being able to say, God is good and we do not weep as those without hope because one day we will be reunited. What is that that gives them hope? It is the power of the resurrection. And if you're a believer here in this room, the evidence, the linen cloths, they're in your soul they're in your heart because what we are saying is is that the holy spirit resides inside of you and you once were blind and now you can see you once were lost and now you are found i know that he is alive because he lives in me the linen cloths the evidence i see all around me this is the surprise of that Easter morning. But there's more to the surprise. There's the significance. We want to make sure we understand the significance. Going in verses 11 through 18, read with me. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she said, and she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. So the scene shifts. In John's gospel, from these two disciples who are gazing into the empty tomb to Mary Magdalene, it comes back to the primary subject of uh, the primary witness, excuse me, of John chapter 20 in that empty tomb. And she's outside of the tomb. And what is Mary doing? She is weeping, she is crying. Jesus is gone. Two angels appear and they ask her a question that's going to be asked again Why are you crying? And she says, well, of course, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where he is. And then in this miraculous instant type of way, Jesus appears next to her. And Mary Magdalene has no idea who he is. He asks, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And Mary Magdalene says, this must be the gardener. I don't know who this guy is. Must be the gardener here. He mistakes or she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. And why is this significant? One of the things, if we had the time, we'd be able to trace this through John's gospel, but I think you maybe can even pick up, maybe you even have an intuition of what's going on here because John's gospel is tying some things together. Adam, Adam and Eve are created with a perfect relationship with God and God places them where? He places them in a garden. And in the garden, they walk with God, they talk with God, and then sin enters inside of the garden and there's a shift Adam and Eve, who were created for the garden, have to leave the garden. And there are two angels who stand guard to not let them back into the garden. And all of us are like Adam and Eve. We're created for the garden, but we can't live in the garden with our sin. And so the story of Jesus is to get us back to the garden. And Jesus himself, while he's a human, he walks through the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, where he says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. He is upending the temptation of Satan. as Satan, even in that moment of, of deep anguish, is tempting Jesus to, to go the way, not of sacrifice, but go the way of self. And he says, not my will, but thy will be done. When Jesus is purchasing our salvation in John chapter 19, there's just this little, little statement at the place where Jesus was crucified. John tells us there was a garden. And Jesus appears to Mary, and where does he appear to Mary? He appears to Mary in a garden. And what John is telling us, as we were created for the garden, as we were created for that place of uninterrupted, unmediated relationship with God the Father, because sin is with us, because brokenness is around us and inside of us, there is going to be a way that we can get back to the garden. That is through Jesus Christ. So our original calling was for the garden, and the original restoration is going to be in the garden. In Revelation chapter 22, kind of the, the last picture that we have of the way the heavens and the earth are going to be, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And what's there in the middle? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, what's there? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The work of Jesus Christ upon the cross is the bridge that gets us back into that perfect, mediated relationship with our Father. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you know that he's the bridge, that he's the path? Do you know that he is the one who we as sinners are outside of the garden, but he's calling us back through Jesus. He's calling us back into that place. Well, Mary doesn't get all of that. Certainly doesn't get all of that in the moment. She's weeping. She's crying. She thinks that death has won, that hope is lost, that joy is silenced until Jesus does what? Speaks. Her name. I think parents get this, and if, if you're not a parent, I think you, you, you are a son, you are a daughter, and you understand maybe the intuition of what I'm saying. That there's something instinctual when you have children to just call the, the power of their name. There, there's no manual What to expect when you're expecting. I didn't read that when when I was, you know, so I I didn't know what to do necessarily with my children. But I knew this, that when I held Hayden in my hands, it is instinctual to say Hayden and to sing to him and to, to embrace him so we could go back through life with all of my children and, and really the story of raising my children as a 12 my ch- children as 12 10 and 6 can be can be told through me calling their names hayden hayden <laughs> luke jonathan jonathan hayden And there's something about the tone and the inflection that says, I haven't seen you in four days. Hayden, I'm upset. Luke, I'm cheering them on. Luke, there's something in the tone and the inflection that all of life is wrapped up in. And I wish, maybe there's an audio recording in heaven. But what did Mary hear in the tone, in the inflection, when her Savior called her by name? You know, this is a good reminder. Mary's more than a number. Mary's a name. Mary's more than just a person She's a name. You know what it's like to be called by your name. You know what it's like to uh, have your boss at a big uh, company after months and months of passing you in the hallway to be able to look at you and call you by name. It's, it's one of my goals is to be able to look at all of you that are in this room and, uh, and eventually call you by name and to, to know you because you can't really know someone without really knowing their name. This is a pathway to relationship. And this is Jesus saying to Mary that I am here and no longer do you need to cry, no longer do you need to weep. His resurrection changes everything in this moment. Some of you know that Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, in the last Lord of the Rings book, he comes to the return of the king and it's this uh, very pivotal scene after Mount Doom and after Mordor and Samwise is there and he's asleep and then he wakes up and there's this powerful line where he sees Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asks this question Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening? To the world, A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. What I want you to hear this morning is that only Easter promises that everything that is sad that you have experienced is one day going to come untrue. You see, Mary realizes when she hears Jesus call her by name that everything that she had had happen on Friday has now come untrue. That everything that she thought on Saturday has now come untrue. That everything that she felt in the darkness of that morning and the ache and the sadness is once and for all untrue. And as a believer here this morning, you have aches, you have sadness. If you're a non-believer here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you you know what it's like to ache for memories that are lost. You know what it's like to have loved ones who you grieve that they're not physically present with you. You know what it's like, all of us in this room grieving for injustice that is around us and things that we see on the television that just bring us to tears at the pain and the hurt that people experience. We, we ache for a clean slate to be able to take back those words that we wish we had left unsaid. We, we long for our health to come back that is past us. We we'd long for a rewind button. If we could only pause life and rewind and be able to go back and not make that decision, all of us know what it's like to have sadness that we long to come untrue. And Mary certainly did. You know, there's all kinds of speculation about Mary Magdalene, but, but this, this we know about Mary is that she is a woman who is introduced to us by the gospel writers as one who had seven demons within her. So what we know is is that, that Mary knew sadness. Mary knew regret. Mary knew pain. Mary knew confusion. Mary knew probably abuse. She probably knew uh, emotional and physical and spiritual difficulty. And Jesus knew all of that and Jesus calls her by name. Jesus knew all of her past and Jesus loved her. Jesus knew all that she had gone through and Jesus redeems her. He chose her to take his story to the disciples. The demon possessed Mary is going to be the first person to. To proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that significant? Because Easter is for all of us who are like Mary, far from God. Easter is for Mary because Easter is for you. Easter is for Mary because Easter is for me. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is still calling us by name. Will you believe him by faith? Will you trust in the finished work of the gospel? And when you say yes to what he has done, not what you can accomplish, not what you can do, but when you say yes to what he has done upon the cross... There is hope for you no matter the sadness that you have gone through. There is hope no matter what you face on earth. That no matter what the struggles that you face and the strongholds that you face, no matter the disappointments that you face and the disorder that you might face, Easter is here to remind us with great boldness that there is hope for our future. There is hope in the midst of the ICU where a person's health is frail. Because why? Through Christ, death isn't the end. Resurrection is coming. There is hope for the guilt-ridden person who is shackled by their, fat, uh, by their past. Because why? Mistakes aren't the end. Resurrection is coming. There is hope for the person who is shackled by depression and addiction. Because why? Our struggles through Christ do not get the last word. There is faith and hope and joy Why? Because when we trust in the Christ of this Easter story, nothing can separate you from the love of God. It means that death doesn't have the last word for anyone that is in Christ, that there is hope right now, regardless of where you are right now. Easter means that there is no guilt in life, there is no fear in death. Why? Because this is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath. This is what we say as a church Jesus commands my destiny it means for you Christian that no matter how dark your Friday has been no matter how dark your Friday is no matter how silent it seems in the Saturdays of your life Sunday is around the corner he is risen because he is risen indeed and that church that church makes all the difference do you know this jesus that i'm talking about he is calling you by name have you trusted him as your savior and lord do you know the hope of easter not in your head but in your heart would you bow with me I just want to talk to the person today that came this morning and really didn't want to be here. And maybe this morning, you sort of doubt what I'm talking about. Could right now be a time that you just sit in the silence of this sanctuary. And ask yourself, what am I putting my hope in? This is the story of Christianity. That as Christians, we put our hope in the finished, resurrected life of Jesus Christ. What are you putting your hope in? Is it your money? You're not going to take it with you? Is it your health? It will pass. Is it your success? It's just one layoff away from dismantling that ladder that you're climbing. What are you putting your hope in? There's only one who is worthy of all of our hope. It is the one who brings us hope. God, in you, we put our hope. In you, we put our hope for the future. In you, we hope, put our hope for the present. That no matter the difficulties of the Fridays of life that we face, that you bring joy because you have defeated anything that can separate us from your Father, the holy God. We thank you that in you alone, we take our stand. In you alone. We place our trust. It's in your name we pray. The saving name of Christ. Amen.